to it it is the Derek Hunter podcast for what the hell is it? the 16th of November 2023 Tuesday the day after you'll hear this the day after the Iowa caucus the Hawkeye Hawkeye. we'll talk about that tomorrow but uh, welcome uh, to it I am Derek Hunter I'm your host appreciate you listening download and sharing telling a friend all that good stuff don't forget to uh check out patreon.com slash Derek Hunter podcast or Derek Hunter.locals.com that's where you can enter to win the uh, book contest. It is for a up for grabs, a signed Bo Snurdly copy of Rush on the Radio. You can't beat that. James Golden, the good dude that he is, has a book about his time with Rush, and I have an autographed copy that I'll be giving away to you. Congratulations to whoever ends up winning it. Just go to patreon.com slash Derek Hunter podcast or Derek Hunter.locals.com. Sign up, support the show, and you can enter the contest and all that good stuff. So there you go. Let's start with the program. We do have a lot of stuff going on, a bunch of stuff to get to. This is, of course, the day of the Iowa caucuses, and it's supposed to be like minus 30 degrees wind chill out there. Going to be very cold. It's all about turnout. And it's all very exciting, and all these people are going to be hyping it. And let me just tell you, again, reiterate, the Iowa caucuses are irrelevant. They really, truly are from a Republican standpoint. They're a much better indicator of where the Democrats are when there isn't a nominee, when there isn't a uh, an incumbent. But as far as the Iowa caucuses go in the Republican Party, the last time they predicted or picked the ultimate Republican nominee was 2000. That's it. 2000, George W. Bush. Other than that, they went with Mike Huckabee. They went with, uh, who was it? Um, Rick Sant. Remember Rick Santorum? Remember the Santorum administration? <laughs> yeah, they, they've always picked a Ted Cruz won in 2016. So it isn't even like Donald Trump won in Iowa. By uh, so it's it's not that big of a deal. Now I'll tell you, as a Ron DeSantis fan, he made a huge, huge mistake in putting all of his eggs in this basket. Really did, because it is kind of you know not predictive of anything. It's not. It doesn't matter. New Hampshire is a much better indicator. New Hampshire is at like 80%. Whoever wins New Hampshire goes on to win the the uh, nomination. I don't know who was advising him. See, in Iowa, you have to, what do you have to do in Iowa? You have to go out and suck up to a bunch of farmers. Nothing against farmers, but the vast majority of the country are not farmers. And in particular, the vast majority of the country are not corn farmers. So in Iowa, you have to do what? You have to promise massive subsidies, ethanol subsidies. We're going to keep the gravy train rolling. We're going to keep the gravy. And, you know, I get it. You sit there and you go, hey, uh, people, farmers, they need to keep their farms. They'll lose their farms. Everything. Yeah, okay, fine. That's all well and good. But what if you're only growing corn? What if they're only growing corn because of the government subsidizing it? What if... The government weren't subsidizing corn. They wouldn't grow so much corn because we waste a lot of corn, even feed corn in this country, um, because we're subsidizing it. People go, oh, we'll get extra money if we grow this stuff. So they start growing it. You pervert the market. That's the problem. So that's why subsidies, because, boy, we only thought that we would subsidize X amount of dollars, and now we're subsidizing twice as much. Why is that? How is that? How is that even? Why? Because you said, if you grow this, we'll pay you. And a whole bunch of people said, well, that's great. I don't have to worry about the market forces. If I grow soybeans and uh, nobody's buying soybeans this year, I'm screwed. But if I buy, if I grow corn, the government's pretty much going to guarantee that I'll make a profit. This will be great. This government will make up the difference. So you get more people growing it. Maybe some farmers in Iowa would lose their farms if they horribly mismanage it. But then... 
Maybe not. Maybe they would look at the situation and go, well, we need to grow something else. Corn is not where it's at anymore. And so they would grow something else. You never know until you try. But politicians in both parties go to Iowa and say, don't worry, we're going to keep the gravy train flowing. We're going to keep the money rolling in. It's going to be beautiful. You have nothing to worry about from me. And you go, all right, well, there you go. Now you go to New Hampshire, where their state motto is live free or die. How into subsidies do you think Republican voters are going to be in New Hampshire? They're not growing a lot of corn. They're not growing much of anything. So are they going to be sitting there with their hands out going, give me mine? Or is the live free or die state going to say, you know what? Uh, I don't like the person who spent the last six months kissing butts in Iowa promising to subsidize things. I think it's more the latter, don't you? Of course, in the general election, New Hampshire, since I think it was 2000, has gone for the Democrats. So they've, as a state, have chosen the die part of their motto. But the Republican voter base has chosen to live free. So you're not going to get a lot of momentum. So whatever momentum you get out of Iowa, you immediately lose in New Hampshire. Because I don't believe anybody's ever won both. I really don't, unless they were an incumbent unchallenged. I don't think anybody's even won both. And then even when there is an incumbent challenged in 1992, Pat Buchanan won New Hampshire, challenging George H.W. Bush because he broke his pledge on raising taxes. So it is not much of anything when it comes to an indication of things in Iowa. Keep that in mind. It is going to be spun. Now, if if DeSantis pulls like 10%, then it's over for him. All right? If he really crashes and burns, it's over for him. But if he does okay, if he comes in a, a close, especially if it's a close second, and he overperforms what they're putting in the polls, don't be surprised if DeSantis sticks around. If DeSantis, like I say, a distant third, horrible showing, embarrasses himself, he'll probably have to drop out. Although, you know, New Hampshire's only a week away. He hasn't really put much effort into New Hampshire, so you can't expect him to do well. If he does well, they always say there are three tickets out of Iowa. So if you do well in New Hampshire, there's win, place, and show. If you do well in New Hampshire or I mean in Iowa, he could walk into New Hampshire and all he has to do is overperform. All he really has to do is overperform. He doesn't have to win. He's not going to win in New Hampshire. But if he does better than the expectation game, it's very bizarre. The donor class and a lot of voters look at people who they think are, you like to think, boy, we're principled conservatives. We're this, we're that, we're that. Really, most voters are not. Most voters aren't. It's not anywhere close to it. They, somebody's going to win. This person's ahead. They've got the momentum. I'm going to vote for them. Sadly, we're a nation of culture, a society of bandwagon jumpers. I'd much rather a whole bunch of people go, I, yeah, this is the person I support because I agree with them. They're going to lose, but I don't care. You know, I love Vivek. I love me some Vivek Ramaswamy, and I don't really care how poorly he does. He's my guy. So when you're looking at the results tonight, as long as everybody does kind of what's expected, I wouldn't expect much. The only person who really runs risk of dropping out tonight is Ramaswamy. He's largely self-funded, and I don't know what else he's got better to do. He's got a lot of money. It's not costing him a lot of money. He canceled most of his campaign ads anyway. So he might stick around through New Hampshire. But the real race, if DeSantis does better than expected tonight, is he has to survive through South Carolina. If he survives through South Carolina, that's Nikki Haley's home state. If she loses to Trump in her home state and DeSantis is still around, then it really becomes a scramble. Then it really becomes a mess. Donald Trump's still widely favored. Still more than likely going to be the nominee. But if you're looking for a pathway forward for 
anybody other than Trump. Nikki Haley has to win in New Hampshire, and I think she'll if she wins in New Hampshire, I think she can roll that into a win in South Carolina. If she wins two back to back, it shows that Trump is vulnerable and things really start to change. And then I suspect that uh, DeSantis gets out. But if Trump wins Iowa, Trump wins New Hampshire and Trump wins South Carolina, it doesn't really matter what anybody else does, what anybody else says, what anybody else wants or how much money anybody ever gets. It doesn't matter. But keep in mind, in and of itself, in a vacuum, in a Tupperware container of time, the Iowa caucuses don't matter. Just a reminder. Huckabee won in 2008. Rick Santorum won in 2012. Ted Cruz won in 2016. None of them, none of them went on to win the nomination. On the Democratic side, by the way, Al Gore won 2000. John Kerry won in 04. Obama in 08, Hillary in 16. The only time Iowa didn't predict a winner for the Democrats was in 2020 when I think Pete Buttigieg won. They still haven't actually decided who ultimately won. That one got so screwed up. But Pete Buttigieg came out with the most delegates. People forget if you want to look at history, if you're sitting there going, oh, my candidate's behind, my candidate's behind. People forget Joe Biden lost Iowa by a lot in 2020. Then he lost New Hampshire, but he came in fifth or sixth in New Hampshire. He was on his way, well on his way, to losing in South Carolina until the Democrat established, because it was going to be Bernie Sanders. Well, if you're a Bernie Sanders fan, first of all, you're crazy. Secondly, you got to be pissed off at the establishment. They partnered with Hillary in 2016 to screw you over in 2016 the super delegates and everything, then, uh, yeah, okay, so Bernie bows out and he thinks, well, 2020 is going to be my year. And 2020 was going to be his year. That He is where the party sentiment is. But they were scared to death that he would get his rear end handed to him by Trump in the general election. So they decided Joe Biden was the way to go. And after two losses in an embarrassing campaign, it's a rather horrible campaign Biden did in 2020. They convinced after South, or they convinced James Clyburn in South Carolina to give a speech, long-term member of Congress, revered leader in the black community, gave a speech endorsing wholeheartedly Joe Biden. And more importantly, he put his political machine behind Biden. That gave him South Carolina. And then weirdly at that point, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, and uh, somebody else, I can't remember, doesn't matter, dropped out of the race. They all dropped out of the race and endorsed Joe Biden. You go, why would you drop out of the race and endorse Joe Biden? You, you guys have, you guys are doing better than Joe Biden in the three election in the three. There are three votes at that point. You'd both done better than Biden in two of them. And then the third one, he did better. But you can see why he did better. The entire state apparatus came down on the Democratic Party. Now, there was a deal cut somewhere behind the scenes. That's how you get it. Pete Buttigieg as Secretary of Transportation because he failed at building bike paths when he was mayor of South Bend, Indiana. And the party establishment closed ranks and screwed over Bernie Sanders again. That was it. That's how you end up with Joe Biden. People think that he was somehow beloved. He thinks he's beloved. His own family doesn't even really like him all that much. So things can change in a heartbeat in politics or things can work out exactly as they are planned and as everybody expects. We'll find out tonight how uh, how good or bad polling has gotten since 2022 when they predicted a red wave and then we got a, a red drip at best. Oh, by the way, um, the governor here, the former governor here, I will say, I don't, I know Larry Hogan. I've known Larry Hogan for a long time. He, uh, when our first daughter was uh, born, he like, sent out a message. I don't know if it was an official press release or congratulating us, whatever. It was a tweet and everything. My daughter, Quinn, if she's listening, well, she, she came into this world like Tucker Carlson sent her flowers. 
in the hospital. A check would be nice, Tuck. Uh, the governor of Maryland was like, congratulations, welcome to the world. To this day, I've never gotten that kind of recognition. So she's got a lot to live up to. But anyway, Larry Hogan is uh, still making the rounds. He's finally taken... I kid, I kid. People were like, well, it looks like Larry Hogan isn't running for president. Nobody thought Larry... Nobody serious thought Larry Hogan was running for president. Larry Hogan is... He was a... He's a better governor than we have now. But he was a massive disappointment because he did absolutely nothing for anybody not named Larry Hogan while he was governor of Maryland. He did nothing. He's the only guy, he left Annapolis with a giant bag full of political capital slung over his shoulder going, ah, I'm going to use this. And then no, no, it expires. Once you leave office, it's done. You didn't help elect Republicans, so your legacy was... You left a state with a supermajority of Democrats in the legislature who could override any one of your vetoes. So you were kind of irrelevant, except for in the budgeting process, which is you know a quirk of the Constitution here in Maryland. But other than that, anything else he wanted, he didn't get done. Anything he did through executive order or anything he, you know, the legislature he tried to oppose, the legislature simply overrode his veto. He was the governor who wasn't there. But still, because he's a Republican and he was the most popular, it's weird, Maryland, you, you tout yourself as the most popular governor in the country in Maryland. You're a Republican, you're the most popular because you're not doing anything, okay? You're not even trying to do anything. If you're that popular, use that popularity to try and convince people to your side. Try and get some popular support from your popularity. But he didn't. He didn't campaign for anybody. He didn't fundraise for anybody. Even when he was leaving office, he didn't do a damn thing. So, of course, Democrats love the idea of Larry Hogan running for president because he's got a long history of screwing over Republicans. Well, he's not going to. He has come out and endorsed Nikki Haley. Now, I want you to listen to this clip from CNN's State of the Union. I think it's still hosted by Jake Tapper, at least ostensibly, on uh, Sunday And you're not going to hear a ringing endorsement. I'm not going to play the whole thing. You're not going to really hear a ringing endorsement. What you're going to hear is, I think she's got the best chance of of beating Trump, so I support her. Which is like, well, I don't think the people who really, I really want to go to the dance with are going to ask me. So I'll go with you. It's not really an ego boost. Not really super... um, enthusiastic. And I would posit to say that in politics, it's not principled in any way, shape or form. It's not making a case for that. I think Nikki Haley is a great because of X, Y, and Z. And it's, I think that she'd probably win. I don't like Trump. I don't like DeSantis and Vivek ain't going to do it. So I'll just throw my insignificant support behind Nikki Haley. So it's really about the fight for for second place. And, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis has put all the marbles on Iowa and spent all of his time and money and seems to be uh, going in the wrong direction. I think Nikki Haley's got all the momentum. And what this race is really all about is to try to nominate the strongest possible nominee for November. Uh, I'm convinced that the momentum is with Nikki Haley, that uh, she has the potential of moving into uh, uh, second place. She's got momentum and potential to move into second place. Do you agree with her on anything, Governor? Do you agree with her? If you've ever watched Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Larry Hogan is the spitting image of Morn, who's the character in Quark's bar who never said anything. But it's a spitting image of him. Do you agree with him? Is there any issue that you actually care about, Larry? Is there anything that you'd actually, aside from you, have you ever seen anybody just blow their political future like Larry Hogan has? We have an open Senate seat here in Maryland. He was a wildly popular governor, mostly because he didn't do anything. And he decided not to run. You got David Trone, a horrible person who exploited the death of his own nephew for his political gain. Like, how do you do? How do you make that call? How do you call up your sibling and go, hey, I'm going to put in commercial after commercial after commercial and use my massive fortune to run TV ads reminding you of your worst day because I think I can get some political mileage out of it. You okay with that? Does he even make that call or does he just do it? Of course, when he first ran for the House and lost, he'd spent like $12 million in a primary. 
and lost to Jamie Raskin in Montgomery County. It was um, the most expensive primary race in history. Didn't even come close to sniffing victory. In that campaign, he did commercials with his daughters talking about how he wants them to be able to have abortions in the future. And it's like, dude, that's just creepy. So you look at David Trone, more money than God, and you think, well, you're the most popular governor in, in, the st- in uh, history, really, in this state. Why wouldn't you go for that seat? Because there's no appetite for you nationally. And he, no, he was thinking about running as a third party, but now with endorsing Nikki Haley, he kind of took himself out of that. I don't know who is advising Larry Hogan. Knowing Larry, it's Larry advising Larry Hogan. And it kind of shows because it has just been one comedy of errors after another. So there you go, though. If you were waiting for, if you know, I don't make a political move until I hear from Larry Hogan. There's your move. <laughs> There's your endorsement. God help us. And uh, yeah, maybe he'll go away now. I doubt it. He's a Democrat's favorite Republican because he doesn't do anything. He doesn't stand for anything. and doesn't try. doesn't fight. They love Republicans like that. So enough about the Hawkeye cockeye for now. I say there are other things going on in the world that uh, we'll, there'll be plenty of time tomorrow to talk about the results. But today, I want to, right now, I want to bring it down a notch. Talk about a problem that uh, is plaguing some very important people in this country, very special people. It's a sad, sad thing, and I'm hoping that maybe we can raise some money for these people. It's a charity event, or it should be a charity event. It should be one of those things that really rallies everybody together. When you hear the hardship that these people go through, something must be done. I'm speaking, of course, of our members of Congress and not making enough money. It's, It's just a horrible, horrible tragedy. $174,000 a year just is not enough to live. You hear this argument all the time. I can't make this money. We need to make it. We need to raise it. How am I supposed to maintain two residences in my district? Okay, we're just going to have to figure it out. You ran for the job. It's not like like somebody just grabbed you off the street, threw a bag over your head, tossed you in the back of a van, and said, now you're a member of Congress. You got to maintain two residences. You don't actually, you shouldn't actually maintain a residence in Washington, D.C. Starting in 1994, with the Republican takeover of the House of Representatives, a new phenomenon started. It's sort of gone away a little bit, but it is members sleeping in their offices. Why? Well, those offices, even over in the House, the House, the Senate offices, you get a whole big suite. You're representing a whole state. You have a big staff. It's uh, and still, the office is really nice for the senators. And depending on the size of your state, you get a pretty big Hillary Clinton had a giant staff and a, almost a whole floor over in the House office building. California and New York, based on population, have the biggest Senate offices. In the House, it's different. You've got basically three rooms. One is the reception room. One is the room where they put a bunch of cubicles in there and everybody kind of sits in there. And then the other is the member's office. But the member's office is about the same size. It's probably three rooms that are the size of maybe uh, 40 by 20, 20 by 40, whatever. So you get eight people stuck in one room, one receptionist with a couple of desks and cubes stuck behind the receptionist. And then the member gets a huge office. They get a big desk. They have a private bathroom with a shower. And they have you know seating area with couches and chairs and whatever. You could easily throw a cart in there. Or a cot, not a cart. Although you could probably fit a golf cart in there, too, if you wanted to. But you could fit a cot in there. Sleep in your office if that's the problem. Your flights are paid for. You get a stipend, I believe, still for money. You're not really having to outlay a whole lot of money. If you live in your office, it's not going to be super convenient. It's not going to be super comfortable. But you're not supposed to live in Washington, D.C. You're just supposed to work in Washington, D.C. But no... What brings this up? This story from the Business Insider. Elizabeth Warren says lawmakers need a raise so that Congress isn't, quote, the plaything of multimillionaires and billionaires. Of course, she's a multimillionaire. Of course, she made it big. 
one of the most successful Native Americans. Oh, yeah, that's right. She's just a white lady. Quote, uh, let's see, Elizabeth Warren is backing a pay raise for members of Congress. Quote, Congress should not be the plaything of multimillionaires and billionaires, she told Business Insider. She also emphasizes that congressional staff need a raise even more. Now, I could kind of get a little bit behind that. Entry-level jobs, it's been a while. But when I knew it, it was like $26,000 to start off and, 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 you know, sit there and go, well, I made less. Okay. But Washington, D.C. is like the second most expensive state to live in. Now, you got to recognize that people go there because they want to work in government. That's the choice they made. It's hard to have a lot of sympathy for somebody banging their head against a wall. But they, uh, you can barely get by, even if you're living with five people. That eats up a huge amount of your income. I'm not saying double their pay. It's entry-level work. But I would like it to be a little bit more than just enough to survive so that people who aren't necessarily children of wealthy people. Because I tell you, one of the things that blew my mind, it was such a foreign concept. It still kind of is. When I first moved to Washington, D.C., I'd never done an internship. I couldn't afford an internship. It was like internship is volunteer work, essentially. I, I had to actually work, so it wasn't like I could volunteer anywhere. But a whole bunch of people with well-to-do parents had done internships, okay? You know, advantage them. But then there were some people with entry-level gigs who bought or owned really expensive houses in Washington, D.C., and housing is ridiculously expensive, especially up on Capitol Hill. It's like, how in the hell do you... You're making $30,000 a year. How do you have an $800,000 house? And you'd be surprised how often I'd heard, well, my pa- when I moved here, my parents bought the house. So I'd have a place to live. Nothing against people like that. But if you're going to run around and tattoo on your forehead, celebrate diversity, just a little bit of diversity of maybe income. See, I, I am opposed to affirmative action. But if you do want to try and, quote, level the playing field, at least at the starting line, the finish line is up to the people. You do it based on income. You don't do it based on skin color, gender, or anything else. Because, let's, Katanji Brown Jackson, Supreme Court Justice, I don't know if she's got any kids, but if she's got any kids, she's advantaged a lot more. Those kids are advantaged a hell of a lot more than anybody I went to high school with of any configuration. There's no question about it. The Supreme Court justice's kid starts off on third base. That's it. Doesn't matter the skin color. Doesn't matter anything. Whatever weird gender identity they come up with. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. So why should they benefit from that if you really want to level the playing field? And then you realize, oh, no, they're playing a different political game. It has nothing to do with it. Anyway, uh, Congress should not be the playthings of millionaires and billionaires who've already secured their fortunes and don't care about earning a living to support their families, Elizabeth Warren said. Warren has a point. Many members of Congress are extraordinarily wealthy, including herself. She made a fortune working at Harvard as the lone minority woman law professor at Harvard Law back when she was lying about being Native American. It's weird. She got jobs based off of that. It was a big deal. And now she's in a position in a party where that, being a woman of color, is one of the most desired positions to ever possibly be in. And she's not talking about it. She's one, what was it, 640th or something like that, Native American, which I think everybody is. Everybody's a mutt if you go back far enough. But it was, no, it was one 124th, I think or 1,024th. It was so ridiculously small. But she still claimed victory over it and then moved on. And the media said, yeah, no, no, she's totally Native American. She's, she's, just, she's just this side of Pocahontas. God. Uh, like others, Warren cited a unique cost that comes with being a member of Congress, including the need to maintain two homes in two different parts of the country. You took the job. Do you have to live like a king in either of them? 
you're making $174,000. If you are living in your office, if you're sleeping in your office, you have $174,000 to make you know, the rest of your home with, your home back in your district. Now, if you're representing Manhattan, that's probably not enough, or at least not enough to live in a way that you would like to. Tough. Again, you chose this job. Nobody is forced to take these jobs. But in most of the rest of the country, I would dare say that $174,000 is quite a bit of money to live quite well on. You want to do a cost of living adjustment? That's fine. You want to do what most politicians do and kind of throw in a pay raise and some sort of massive omnibus spending bill that has to pass? I have a problem with that. You think you deserve a raise, do a standalone bill, and put your name on it. Make sure everybody knows where you stood. You supported this one singular piece of legislation that was expressly created to make sure you get a raise. You want to do that? And let the people decide whether or not you deserve a raise. That's fine. That's all well and good. But I would really like a more strong review process. For senators, you only get, you know, most businesses, you get an annual review. Senators get a review every six years. Members of the House get a review every two years. It's not nothing. But the power of incumbency, incumbency makes that review process next to nothing. It's meaningless, really. You want a raise Put it on a referendum. I would like to see that. Wouldn't you like to see it? Would you vote to give these people a raise? Absolutely. Hell no. But that's just me. It's a plaything of rich people. Okay. That's not the problem. There are plenty of poor people who go into politics. There are plenty of middle-income, middle-class people in the House of Representatives. There are 535 members of Congress, 100 in the Senate, 435 in the House. There's people of all income levels. It's not living while you're there that's the problem. That's the barrier to entry. It's the ability to self-finance. It's, again, back to David Trone. I don't want to take away the ability to self-finance. But David Trone made a fortune from Total Wine and More. He's filthy rich. He has nothing better to do with his time. And an arrogance that you wouldn't believe. That he simply believes he should lead people. He should impose his will on people because he believes he's right. His fortune empowers him to do that. I don't want to impose money controls. I don't want to say that there's, term or there's limits on that. I don't want to say you can't self-finance. I don't want public financing of it. Realistically, if you really want to change Washington, D.C., you don't have to worry about the David Trones of the world. He's a bad person and a horrible campaigner. He's just filthy rich. You got to run better candidates. You got to run better campaigns. This is the job, Elizabeth Warren. This is the pay, Elizabeth Warren. If you don't like it, you're free to leave. You're free to retire. You're free to go back to academia or back to the reservation or wherever you pretend you grew up and get out of it. You don't. Because you're filthy rich already. So spare me that you want to raise. That you might have to dip into your savings. The only reason you'd have to do that and spend your own money, Elizabeth Warren, is if you want to live large while you're in Washington, D.C. You want to be of Washington, D.C. rather than work in Washington, D.C. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, by the way, she has a very nice apartment just near the uh, the stadiums down there just off the freeway in her building there's a whole foods i've been to her building there's a whole foods right on the first floor of her building she pulls up in her tesla runs in there and fills up on organic stuff i know people who live in her building they run into her all the time she's not living frugally am i supposed to care if she's having trouble making rent in new york no I do care, mostly because I want to laugh at it. That's just me. Uh, by the way, Business Insider reported this back on uh, January 12th, 2024, and speaking about the raises Elizabeth Warren wants, that th they have a specific amount of money that they want. Some of them do. I'll just read you the headline. 
A $174,000 salary isn't enough for some members of Congress. In fact, they should probably give themselves a $100,000 raise. <laughs> isn't that right? Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? Like, I would be exceedingly good at spending other people's money. I have just, you know, one of those things that you accept. I'd be really good at being a lottery winner, and I would be one of the best probably ever in spending other people's money, if I had to guess. You know, just just saying. So I'll happily take your credit card if you want to test that theory. Maybe I get a government grant. Maybe get an any. It's performance art. I want to live my life as performance art and get an NEA grant that uh, just allows me to test my theory. That'd be nice. Uh, you remember the uh, auto strike last year? The big deal, they, all, big three were all targeted. It was the only auto strike I'd ever seen where they're like, yeah, we're just going to target certain factories. Like, it's not a complete. They used to just pick, as I remember, I, my dad drove a forklift for General Motors for 30 years. I remember when they were talking about strikes that go, we're going to target Ford this year. Or we're going to target GM this year. And the other ones, they like, there's no threat of a strike for the other companies. It was just a one company threat of a strike. But it would have been when there was strikes. It was, it was the whole company. It was every UAW member who worked for General Motors, when they went on strike, they were all on strike. Well, now they're like, we're going to close these three factories. Those factories are on strike. But everybody else is going to report to duty. Part of that, I think, has to do with the fact that Maybe union bosses don't have the kind of resources they used to have to pay the strike wages. They might have, I don't know, I'm not saying they skimmed it, but maybe they did. But anyway, they struck this. It went on for a long time. The president got involved. The media was very concerned. Oh, my goodness, it's causing a slowdown in the GDP. Any recession, any economic woes are partly in, uh, to blame because of the big three, blah, blah, blah. Well, Ultimately, the UAW won. How do I know they won? Because they told me they won. Democrats danced in the street. The UAW was dancing in the street. They got the massive raise they wanted. They got everything. They got a whole bunch of things that they wanted. Well, be careful what you wish for. Wall Street Journal today. Robots are looking better to Detroit as labor costs rise. Huh? <laughs> Subheadline, expensive new union contracts spark more interest in assembly line automation for vehicles. But risk exists. Now, wait, wait, it was, the, the UAW just won. Uh, did they? Did they? Everybody gets more money and then everybody loses their job. But don't worry about it. Automakers are looking to an old friend to help offset rising labor costs. Robots. There's a lesson out there for the people who are... Uh, you know, there used to be the fight for 15, but in liberal states, they ended up getting it. The people who want a $15 minimum wage for fast food workers. You walk into a McDonald's now, and what do you see? There's, there used to be a bank of cash registers. Remember that? And it didn't always have somebody standing there, but at lunch and dinner time they would. But there'd be a bank, three, four cash registers up there. People fill in there and used to, you know, order your food, and then, like, you'd get your food. Now you walk in and... There's a giant, essentially an iPad. And you go through and you're like, what the hell? Where Did I order this right? What am I getting? And then you order it. You swipe your credit card. And then you wait for your number to show up on a screen and you go pick up your food. If you can be replaced by a touch screen and a credit card swiper, might I posit that that job isn't worth $15 an hour? Well, a lot fewer of those jobs are existing. A lot fewer of those jobs are existing and will exist going forward. Wait till they introduce the touch screen at the drive-thru. It's only a matter of time. And then they'll have the automated assembly line where they just, your bun drops and then the burger drops and then the toppings. They're going to start automating that too. Why? Because you can't make that, or either that or it's going to be a $20 Big Mac. It's your choice. Probably unlikely to be a $20 Big Mac because nobody will be able to afford a $20 Big Mac. You're not going to be able to fully automate your way out of labor costs. But if you can mitigate them, if you can drop your labor costs 25%, you will do it. Well, Derek, those machines aren't free. No, those machines aren't free. But they're a one-time cost. 
There are one-time costs that you can depreciate over time on your taxes. They also don't call in sick. They also don't whine. They also don't slip and fall. They also don't film themselves for TikTok taking a bath in the salad wash or doing whatever the hell else it is that these people these people are. What was there? Sudden somebody shoot somebody out of a drive-through window recently? Like there, you don't have to worry about. Oh my God, the ketchup sprayer just killed a guy. It's not really going to be an issue. I mean, you got to watch the mustard, but that's just beside the point. These people are going to win their labor victories out of existence. I'm not saying you don't deserve a raise or anything. I'm just saying you've got to be smart. The reason unions are having problems, when I was in college, it was, there was a, a strike Detroit newspapers. They have two newspapers in Detroit, the Detroit Free Press and the Detroit News. The News was kind of the conservative paper, came in the afternoon. The Free Press was kind of the liberal paper, came in the mornings. The Free Press had the better comic strips. They had Calvin and Hobbes. That was all I really cared about as a kid. But eventually they started going broke. And they came up with a joint operating agreement where they would publish a Saturday and Sunday edition together. So they, they'd save money that way. And that, they lived out on that for a while. And then I think they now publish like every other day and they take turns doing things, whatever it is. But there was a writer's or a journalist strike for a very long time. And it was, they just, they just operated without it. They used non-union labor and whatever, an AP copy. And they survived finding, went on for years. And I remember in college, probably 1998, 99, there was some rally on campus for uh, the, the, the journalists, the striking newspaper guild or whatever. I don't know why. The newspapers weren't located anywhere near campus, but they knew that they would find a receptive audience and nobody gave a damn downtown. Plus, at that time, downtown was nothing. There wasn't even anybody to shoot you there downtown. It was so, so empty. So uh, they came to campus and we got extra credit if we went to it. And I went to it for the extra credit and out of morbid curiosity. And if you had blindfolded me, you would have thought it was 1920. It's hearing the rhetoric from the union bosses talking about, oh, the the man this and the man that, management blah. They hadn't changed their rhetoric in 80 years. Pointless. That strike was eventually settled. But the problem is that the union apparatus hasn't really changed in 80 years. They have one objective, get more money. Why? Because they get a bigger, the more, more water they put in the pool, the wetter their beak gets. That's how it works. Then they can do the things that they really want to do, which is political activism, and et cetera, et cetera. They can take more flights. They have more money to do more things with. Well, if all you care about is more money, more money, more money, I get it. Merit doesn't matter. That's the problem. That's my biggest problem with unions is merit doesn't matter. I've told the story before. I'll tell it again. When I was a sophomore in high school, the year after sophomore year in high school, the summer of after my sophomore year in high school, our French teacher was arrested for cocaine trafficking with her husband. They made several trips to South America and whatever. The details, I don't know. We didn't know. But all I knew was that the French teacher who I didn't have, I didn't take French, but the French teacher was gone. There was a new French teacher. Like, huh? Yeah, the uh, French teacher that was there was in prison, or at least in legal limbo and not able to come to school. Wouldn't have been a good thing. Well, after junior year, her husband turned state's evidence, cut a deal, lesser charges for him, I believe, but charges dropped against her. Guess who was back my senior year? The French teacher. But nobody said she didn't engage in cocaine trafficking. The argument was she'd cut a deal and got out of it. That's a hugely different thing. You'd think the union would go, whoa, 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 whoa. You're not, uh, you don't get to come back to the school. All right. You don't, you're not going to jail, but you're not going back. Nope. She was back because the unions protected her. Shouldn't there be some kind of common sense in there? 
unions trade legitimate grievances and protect bad workers at the expense of good ones. If you are a really good teacher, you got the same raise as a bad teacher. When she came back, I bet you she got whatever raise or cost of living adjustment that had occurred while she was gone. Union rules. So, great. Union, yes. Job security. It's job security to a certain point. But once you become a liability, that contract will expire. And so will your usefulness to the company. And frankly, that's the only reason a company would ever hire you, would ever hire anybody, and should ever hire anybody, is you are useful to them. You provide something to them, a value add to them. There's nobody who's a drag. You are a value add to them. And if you are not a value add, or they can find a way to add value at a lower cost than you, you're out. Fighting for a, what is it, a 40% raise is going to be really good for a little while. But it's going to cause problems down the road. For decades, Wall Street Journal reports, car companies have increased automation inside their factories. Now auto executives are looking more closely at this approach to address a rising labor bill and take advantage of more sophisticated technology. Competition from relative newcomers like Tesla, which has been more aggressive in deploying this factory technology, is also nudging more traditional auto manufacturers in this direction. It's not going to end well. It's not going to be good. I'm not saying go out and screw yourself over or whatever. I'm telling you, prepare for it. You get on the Titanic, you head across the North Atlantic, and it's cold, it's early, early spring. Odds are you're going to be fine, but maybe you look at the size of the boat and you say, well, there's not a lot of, uh, not a lot of lifeboats on this thing. Maybe you just want to kind of include in one of your trunks some kind of flotation device. You want to plan ahead. You don't live your life in fear of something horrible happening, but you also want to be as prepared as anybody can be for something bad happening because, and here's a little secret about life, something bad is probably going to happen. Hopefully not catastrophic, but there are bumps in the road. Be prepared for it. And then when you're looking at these unions, recognize that they might be in the bump manufacturing business. They just might. By the way, speaking of electric vehicles, told you last week about um, electric vehicle sales slumping and everything. Well, now here's, and the prices, and I told you about how they get a $7,500 subsidy and whatever. Well, if you're in the market for an electric vehicle, NBC News suggests you might just want to wait a little bit. Headline, as EV sales slow, some drivers could buy one for as little as $10,000 this year. Cooling demand for that. Hell, I'd buy one for that price, to be honest with you. There are plenty of reasons not to buy an electric vehicle in 2024. Auto loan rates are high. For example, despite a recent wave of discounting, many EVs remain pricier than gas-burning cars. I don't think there's anyone of these EVs that is less than a gas-burning car. But whatever. I guess if you're rolling and you're buying like a $75,000 truck. Maybe. Uh, and it's an incomplete network of sometimes glitchy chargers has stoked drivers' range anxiety about running out of juice. But while all the electric market, while the all-electric market is slowing, sales are forecast to keep rising. Cox Automotive expert EV compares... Uh, EVs to comp- expects EVs to comprise 10% of the United States vehicle market by the end of the year, up from 7.6% last year. You are uh, delusional if you think that. Tax credits covered fewer models, but without the weight, they say. But as they expect, to lower price and local initiatives can add up to better savings. Auto experts say the mix of federal and state incentives at a time when EV prices are falling Again, the start of the story is EV prices are up, sales are up. That's not the case. It could allow consumers in some places to drive a new or used EV off the lot for as little as ten grand this year. That could be a good deal if you just need a local car. Of course, if the battery goes, it wouldn't be uh, that good of a deal because it'll cost you about that much, if not more, to get a new battery. People aren't voluntary. Look. 
there's a good hint. If you need to subsidize the construction of something and the purchase of something, there isn't a demand for it. Goes with the wind and solar. If you need to subsidize the demand, then the manufacturer of something, there isn't a demand for it. Will these things one day work? Possibly, probably. Honestly, humans are pretty innovative people. We'll get there. We're not there yet. You want to buy a Tesla? That's great. But if you want to drive to St. Louis, good luck. That ain't going to work. You're probably going to need to rent a car. I want to shift it up here for a second. I just, I saw this the other day, uh, yesterday, in a headline, and I thought, is this really where we are? Is this really what's happening in the world? One of the things I I firmly believe in is that as a society, as a people, as a species, we're out of problems. We're out of significant or a significant number of problems. We still have some problems, but some people genuinely don't. Yet we have elevated victimhood to something to aspire to. And so you have a whole bunch of people scrambling to find new and creative ways to paint themselves as victims. It's currency. <clears throat> with particularly amongst the left, the, the college campus, and the closer you are to a college campus chronologically, the uh, the more desirous the state of victimhood is for you, and also the more difficult it is to find genuine victimhood. I think you get these little social justice warriors. This is why there are so many hate crime hoaxes. Uh, I've it. it you get these people so charged up. They're on college campus. Racism is everywhere. Sexism is everywhere. It's the foundational part of this country. Horrible. You can never get it. You're just screwed. You blah, 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 blah. And they're told this throughout high school. And then they're told it in college. And these are people who are in positions of authority that you're supposed to respect. They're not going to lie to you. So you go, all right, well, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to find this ism. Whatever it is. And I am going to fight it. I'm going to combat it. And they put their little capes on and their masks on. And they run out in their cosplay world ready to fight all of this horrible discrimination. And they can't find it. They can't find it. Like what? It's, it must be hiding. It has to exist. I have been assured that it exists. But they can't find it. And so what do they do? They go, well, you know what? I know it's there. I'm going to spray paint some stuff on some things. And uh, it'll draw attention to it. Maybe it'll work as bait. It will lure out the people. You end up in a situation like they had in Silver Spring back in 2016, just after Donald Trump was elected president, where somebody sprayed horrible, homophobic things all over a church in Silver Spring. Horrible, horrible things. And it was discovered, wouldn't you know it, by the organ player at the church who happened to be gay. Like a horrible situation. You say something or you hope that somebody who would be really hurt by it wouldn't see it. And it just turns out that it was homophobic and it was found by a gay guy. It's just tragic. And then it turns out that all the paints used to spray paint it were found in the trunk of the car of the gay guy who discovered it. What was he doing? He was trying to draw attention to a problem that Donald Trump. Donald Trump is obviously homophobic. He has to be because Rachel Maddow says he is. And so I'm going to go out and find examples of Trump and his supporters being homophobic and couldn't find it. So he created it to raise awareness for it. That sort of thing happens all the time. It's these social justice warriors who are set up to believe that they and only they are the ones standing between anarchy and a civil society, hatred and decency. And then they can't find the hatred that they're told exists. They know that people, okay, I know people disagree with me politically, but they're not out there burning crosses and throwing gay people off buildings. What's going on? They must be doing it in secret. I'll tell you what, I'll set something up and draw them out. Well, that mentality applies to everything, including, turns out, the metaverse. Now, I've I've never been in the metaverse. I've never done, I've, I haven't even Try. I did once try them when it first came out, one of those Oculus VR things. And now Apple's coming out with one that I think could be pretty damn cool, but it's too much money for too little reward. I know I'd never use it, so I'm not going to get it. 
maybe if they drop the price significantly, but you don't get the first generation of anything anyway. But uh, they have these little goggles they put on. Oculus was purchased by Facebook, and now they've got the metaverse where you could go and be like in a Sims game or something. I assume I've only ever seen renderings online of it. Like I said, I've never done it. Don't really feel like I need to do it. I don't have time to go. I barely have time to get through the real world. I don't have time to go into the fake one. But it was only a matter of time before this victim mentality entered the fake world, too. So you get this story from the UK Daily Mail. I was gang raped in the metaverse. The trauma was similar to a real world assault. Now, I would just like to say right now that rape is a problem. But virtual rape in a VR world is nothing at all like it. Nothing at all like it. The Daily Mail story, a woman has revealed she was virtually gang raped by four male avatars in Meta's Horizon world. And she said the trauma is similar to real world, a real world assault. Speaking to DailyMail.com psychotherapist and startup co-founder Nina Patel said that her, te- now she's a psychotherapist, uh, that her attackers may have felt disinhibited due to being in a virtual world. Isn't that, I don't know, isn't that the point of a virtual world? That you could do whatever you want? You're uninhibited? Like, you can't fly in the real world, but maybe you can in there. I don't know. You can't, you jump off a garage in the real world, it's probably going to leave a mark at a minimum, but if you're on a, somehow on a garage, if they have garages over, couldn't you jump off of it and be like, okay, well, I jumped off the garage. What are you going to do? Isn't it supposed to be uninhibiting? <laughs> While she does not know the attacker's true identities, all four had male voices, and one even said to her, quote, don't pretend like you didn't love it after the attack. See, here's why it's not as traumatic. I mean, aside from the, just the general stupidity of it. All right. And there she is. There is Nina Patel, co-founder of Kabuni. I don't know what the hell Kabuni is, but uh, she's a blonde-haired, blue-eyed white lady. I've only I've known a lot of Patels, like 15 different Patels in my life. Every one of them was Indian. I don't know about this lady, but whatever. What here's the difference between a real-life attack in case this psychotherapist emphasis on the psycho part. The psychotherapist needs help differentiating between a real-world attack and an attack in the metaverse. If you are under attack in the real world, you cannot reach up to your head and take your glasses off and end it. That's a pretty significant difference, right? Isn't it? You also will have somebody physically harming you. That does not happen in the metaverse. If somebody is doing something you don't like. Hell, if you're playing a game, I was, the other day I was playing, uh, what do you call it? Othello. Remember Othello? Playing Othello on my phone. And I was beating the crap out of this person. I don't even know who it was. But they just made every wrong move. I had three of the corners. The game was about 75% done. The board was mostly mine. And, and suddenly they just left. They just quit. I was declared victor by default, denying me my crushing victory, ultimately destroying this person, which would have been more satisfying. But I'd won. This person had had enough, and so they simply exited the app. Problem solved. I'm sure they weren't happy. I'm sure they were annoyed. Every time I lose anything, I'm annoyed. But they just left. Did they go right to their psychotherapist and talk about how they were virtually destroyed? My God, Othello, I might not sleep tonight. No. You just leave. You just go. But this woman got a huge write-up in the most popular news website on all of the internet with a giant photograph of her. So who was traumatized? Patel told the Daily Mail that, quote, the distressing experience happened just 60 seconds after joining the meta-owned virtual world, a shared 3D space where avatars often meet random people. Yeah, because... (laughs) 
What would be the point? You can only interact with people who are in your immediate vicinity in the virtual world. Well, why would you take the mask off and interact with them in the virtual, in the real world, then, if that's the case? Patel was targeted simply for having a female avatar, an experience she described as surreal and horrible. And also, nothing she can apparently prove. I don't know. Can she prove that? Do they record these things? They relentlessly harassed me, then proceeded to what can only be described as the sexual assault of my avatar, she explained. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I mean, I no, I'm not sorry. This woman is insane. Their behavior was offensive and disturbing. See, I don't think you would find a sexual assault victim who, when recounting the horror of their physical attack in the real world, would say, why, the, the person who, people who gang raped me, their behavior was offensive and disturbing. I think they might have a little bit stronger language from that. I think that the sting might be a little bit longer than it takes to reboot their laptop. Horizon World is a pioneering metaverse space owned by Mark Zuckerberg's Meta, a free 3D world where avatars can explore and talk to each other, uh, accessible via MetaQuest headsets and other hardware. But like many VR spaces, it's not heavily policed. And sexism, homophobia, and racism are rife, researchers have said. See, the end part is the key. Researchers have said. Well, what do those researchers do? Well, they research homophobia, sexism, and racism. It's amazing how you always find that which justifies the continuance of your job, isn't it? <laughs> Quote, the attack likely occurred in that instance because of the anonymity and perceived lack of consequences within the VR space, Patel said. Again, this is the woman who's claiming that it is every bit as damaging and traumatic as if it happened in real life. And yet here she is saying, they probably gang raped me because they didn't think there'd be any consequences. Because there are no consequences. It didn't really happen. I would just juxtapose that with what you think somebody who had genuinely been a victim of such an assault would, would respond to it. Patel is the co-founder of Kabuni and is an expert in metaverse and VR. <laughs> now, wait a second. Painting a more uh, vivid portrait here of this. But she's an expert in this. What are the odds that an expert in this within 30 seconds of joining this thing would somehow fall prey to this. Hmm? Why, I think, that, uh, I think that those odds would be pretty slim, I would say. Hence, she was one of the early users of Horizon World. The attack saw the male avatars mobbing her character, yelling abuse at her, and taking photos in-game with one jeering attacker, making a very crude suggestion over what she should do with the images. <laughs> Quote, Some people may engage in such offensive behaviors in VR settings because they feel detached from their real-world identities and believe they can act without facing any repercussion. Isn't that the point of virtual reality? Isn't that the point? Like, that's... <laughs> What we want to do is we want to have virtual reality that's exactly like reality. So you put on your virtual reality headset and you go to your virtual reality job and you sit at your desk nonstop for eight hours. Don't compliment anybody's appearance, anybody's work or anything like that. You go and you eat a virtual reality sandwich and then your boss is there busting your balls because you're five minutes late from lunch. Wow, that sounds really appealing, doesn't it? <laughs> when you go ahead and log into virtual reality world and then it's nonstop harassment by bill collectors everybody hey you owe this you owe this. and they they shut off your power in the virtual world nonstop too and oh by the way you're fat and ugly and uh your avatar is constantly having boils and zits lanced all over their face come on in the water's fine who the hell are these people and where do they live? What kind of a world do they live in? Quote another issue that is potentially on some VR platforms. Aggressive and violent behavior is encouraged and rewarded. 
I uh, I have played The Sims. My daughter Quinn loves to play The Sims on the the PlayStation Five. I played The Sims on a PlayStation Two or three or whatever the hell it was. And I'll admit, I starved some of them to death. <laughs> I denied them the ability to go to bed. I denied them food. I denied them the ability to use the bathroom. I denied them the ability to shower. I tortured the hell out of these things. I did feel a minor tinge of guilt when they're sitting there absolutely having a breakdown in the game right before they die. But I've moved on. You know, um, the police were not called. There was not, you know, an investigation. I am not telling you this. Because the statute of limitations of my my murdering of a sim has finally run out, or this is not a dark confession, and I'm not going to be arrested at the end of the show. It's a computer game. You know what you could do? Is you could exit it and reload an earlier save, and suddenly that sim is back to life. It's a miracle. It's a festivist miracle. These people are insane. This is somebody justifying their job. She's a psychotherapist. Emphasis on the first syllable, I think. Am I allowed to say that? I don't care. It's true. That's about enough for today. I say, I say, I say. Go on with your day. Let's say hey. We'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again. Don't forget to go into the contest, sign up, support the program, and all that good stuff. Appreciate you listening. We'll be back. Talk tomorrow. See you then.